0: This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking this morning with Sal DeFrancesco, K1RGO. Good morning, Sal. Good morning. Sal has an article in the February issue of QST Magazine in which he describes the construction of a 630-meter receiving loop. Is that correct, Sal? That's correct. And... The loop itself, uh, when I saw the article, it, it looks beautiful. You did a magnificent job of it. And again, this is just a receiving loop, but can you roughly detail how you did this?
1: Well, the original loop goes back to two thousand seven and it was part of my uh niche business that I had for about I don't know how many years, thirty five years. It was for uh, alien science uh, and for homeland security. It was supposed to be two of these loops made for the DGPS, and uh, it worked out quite well. And uh, yeah, we kind of uh, marketed, it and that was it. And then I left the uh, the coil itself with RG58, uh, just hanging around for years and years. And I said, well, you know, I'm getting back on 6:30 now. Now that we're all Got the band and everything, and I said, let me see how it'll work. And it worked fantastic. I just had to modify it. And uh, it uh, worked pretty good. Uh, little changes here and there on the uh, preamp. And uh, it was very good at nulling nulling noise, and uh, had plenty of gain. And I kind of used that um, among the other antennas. And uh, it's probably my favorite antenna for the band.
0: Now, I was noticing in the article also that you... And I probably get this wrong, Sal, but you built the loop out of RG-174 coaxial cable, is that right? Yeah. And it, did, what? how did you do that? Was it like 12? I, I saw the number 12 in the loops. It, did you just loop it round yeah. and round?
1: Yeah, 12 turns of uh, approximately an 8-inch uh, uh, diameter. I got an old uh, tail there that I used for, and uh, I marked it off there, an old, um, what do you call it? Um, Trash pail that you use in the bathroom. <laughs> that was my form, and it worked out. Uh, it worked out quite well, and uh, that's what I did. Put it there, and then we split in the center uh, halfway uh, through, and uh, then we got a balanced loop.
0: And are you using a ballon to feed the uh, the antenna to your amplifier circuitry? Yeah, and that's what a one to one ballon?
1: Yeah, one to one.
0: And your amplifier is, uh, it, it looked relatively small. Is it like a two-stage FET or how did you do that?
1: Yeah, it's an FET. I uh, use a J113. I get a little more gain. I could probably use a, uh, uh, FEF 102 or some of the standard stuff. But that's, that's what I used in there and that worked out quite well. And then we just match it to the, uh, the MOSFET and the output and get the MOSFET uh,
0: feeding the 50 ohms. And you designed this yourself, correct? Yeah. The antenna itself, like I said, looks beautiful. It's this black ring. That's what it appears to be. Looks like it would blend in well.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it works out uh, quite well. The original setup was all totally enclosed with a single. uh, You didn't see the little box in there. Everything was right within the... um, pipe itself. It was really unique, and it was difficult if you had a problem. But that was the original design. forgot what we called it. Uh, RL something or other. I don't know. But anyway, that was was the original one.
0: And I have to ask the obvious question, how well does it work?
1: Uh, Quite well. Um, I had some crud here, a lot of noise, and um, I just took it very carefully and narrowly, nulled it out. And I was able, luckily it was in the southwest position where I work most of my stations, with it, uh, nulled it right out and I could, uh, operate. Otherwise I'd have problems. But I, uh, got an experiment, put it outside. I could put it in different spots. And I have other antennas that I usually have a noise nulling circuit and I have a couple of, uh, active antennas and one that's, uh, loosely coupled to the, uh, the loading coil for uh, 630 meters, and uh, feed that into the uh, for receiving also. That's another alternative method. Or I can also take my loop and uh, do the same thing and and use noise nulling. But it appears like I don't really need it because the uh, the loop itself can null it.
0: Noise is a serious problem on 630 meters, isn't it?
1: Yeah, big time. Uh, we it was pretty good here. I don't know what doing a lot of these smart meters and crud coming out uh it's really a pain even 160 is a problem whatever they're doing here i don't know a lot of uh smart meters
0: <laughs> for listeners who may not be familiar with how you're using it i take it you're turning the loop until you get the minimal amount of noise in the direction that you want
1: yeah yeah Or i can peak it too depending on the uh, conditions if there's not much noise around all peak it it's a little broader on the peak, but uh yeah, I know. When there's noise I just null it and uh and uh the station I'm listening to uh works out quite well. I noticed this works a lot better up north. Uh this WA one J A S up in Maine that uh I compared it to my other antenna and it seems to be superior by uh a few S units just using this antenna for some reason or other. That's what I did notice on it.
0: I noticed on your QRZ page that uh, you've also built a transverter to uh, generate RF on 630?
1: Yeah, my own design. I also built a beacon. I have a beacon uh, that I made there. It's a divide-by-four with a super-stable 160-meter uh, oscillator VFO, and I take that, and I divide down, and I key that with my little uh, another design uh, with uh, uh, CMOS uh, for a uh, matrix um uh, ID of my call letters, and that's what I use with that.
0: How many watts output uh, are you getting from the transverter?
1: Well, what I do is I run the uh, FTDX1200 into it, and I run it all the way down to 5 watts, and I have attenuation going in. What's coming out is uh, Class D. I only run CW or QRSS. That's basically all I run. That's all you can run down there anyway. um, unless you want to do FT8 and all that, but uh, that's what I prefer. So, you get about a half a watt out, and that half a watt goes into a, uh, 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 PA, which is a, uh, Class C. It's very efficient. And then I have that to set up, um, you know, remotely in the, the, with a nice navy coil. And I just get a little bit of ferrite to tune it. Don't really need much else, and it comes right comes right in there and loads up the 160 meter inverted V and that's what
0: I use. Wow. And how have yeah. you how have you done with it? I mean, what's your <laughs> what was what would be your best DX if I can call it that so far?
1: Well, I was did not make the full contact but uh what's that? Uh, I'm trying to remember its call here. Uh KV5NJD I think, out in Texas. He did copy me. I was, uh, made contacts out in Tennessee. EJQ there. He isn't on anymore. He had a nice signal. I think he took an old, um, ranger. I don't know what he did, but he, he had a nice signal. Anyway, uh, out there and there's a bunch of stations that work out near, uh, North Carolina and, um, you know, like up to Maine and then, uh, legally not too much out to the Midwest, but out, I used to work here. K9KFR and, uh, and IRU and a bunch of those stations there.
0: That's great for 630 meters. That's a challenging band to say the least. Oh, it is. QSB. That's all you get is QSB. I know you gotta like the
1: band. It gets frustrating, but you gotta like the band. We're in the middle of the queue, so you drop right out. And if you have the patience to wait, if not, you get them later on. <laughs> it's crazy, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a bunch of guys. W3, um, TS is another uh die hard there. Uh, Mike get on with him. There's another guy too. They were running the uh oh, the 100th century there. Uh they are trying to run to see if they can work across the uh, ocean there.
0: Oh yes, the transatlantic test. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, that yeah, and they were doing that on uh there I didn't manage to get in, but uh, uh I guess they didn't have any <laughs> success, but they had like a little party there and they had a little arrangement with a few of the guys that were trying to listen into some of the uh, Europeans there.
0: You mentioned that you often use QRSS and I've discussed that on the podcast in the past, but for yeah. listeners who may not be familiar, I tend to define QRSS as just extremely slow CW. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. Well, what I do is run QRSS 7 on a 630. And I did run it run it as a beacon and I did uh, I do have the software the Argo and the, uh, Spectran the software for that. And, uh, but, uh, it's, it's more popular in Europe and it's not really that popular here. But, uh, I also use, uh, QRSS thirty thirty second 30 second dot on, uh, the 1750 meter band. Uh, we want some experiments on the LWCA there and I'll run that now and then and they'll, they'll give a listen. That's very, very slow and, uh, and made it out there to, um Kansas. So, uh, with Micropower. And then we did play around too with the, uh, the other band there, the 1356, um, you know, five milliwatt. Yeah. Um, dipole stuff. Yeah. We got, I sent the H there and, then, you know, it's amazing what, what we did. Uh, one time in, uh, must have been just perfect, uh, in 2012. I don't remember the exact date. It was a VK, a VK. I forgot it's called there, but. He did copy our uh, signals there in DK uh, land there in New South Wales.
0: So wow. It's, it's amazing what you can do down there. I, got, I
1: Actually, I got that on the QRZ page. I put that on there.
0: Do you plan to try 220 meters at some point?
1: Oh, you mean uh, 2,200?
0: Or 20, 2,200, yes.
1: Not really. It is impractical. <laughs> Too bad they didn't have 1,750 meters.
0: Yes.
1: Because I've been playing on that. I know that quite now. Very noisy here. And impractical, I mean I need a lot more room and I have no interest six thirty is about it and uh and then the other bands you know looks like the uh sunspots are coming back, so I'm getting more interested in the higher uh the higher bands seventeen uh seventeen meters looks good Yeah,
0: yep. yeah we we had a solar flux index the other day that peaked over hundred and forty, and uh even ten meters was wide open,
1: wow, yeah, I got the this- more time on 10. 10 seems dead most of the time. That's true. I do have a 10 meter beacon that I run but I don't know, I'm just listening and see if there's a skip or whatever and if I hear some activity then I'll throw my beacon on that. Otherwise it's, uh, it's frustrating.
0: <laughs> well Sal, thank you for taking the time to put that article together for QST. I think a lot of readers will enjoy it and perhaps it'll uh, give some the inspiration to build that loop themselves and try to get more signals on 630 meters.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to get some activity down there if we can get some uh, more locally. and uh, Like in the past there, we used to get a lot of locals on the 1750 and we used to have a a blast. This goes back in the uh, late 70s and 80s and we used to uh, have quite a few in each state in the tri-state area and uh, we'd have a lot of fun. (laughs) So that would help there, you know, with the shorter skip there and all that. Right now, yeah, uh, there's uh you know I guess they they have to build their build their equipment you know the transverter I don't know I was thinking either maybe I can depending how lazy I am or if I got the strike, maybe putting in the uh, the transverter and the PA and my noise nuller and I also have a counterpoise that I use uh, to help my ground out on uh, six thirty meters I have an electric fence and I resonate it and. uh ah. I bring up about another 10% increase in antenna current. That's another experiment.
0: That's excellent.
1: Yeah. So that might be something else as an article. I got a few ideas, but
0: by all means, writing is not easy, but,
1: uh, no, not at all. <laughs> I wrote for a uh, ham radio magazine, CQ magazine in the past. And I know that was in the past. I forgot how it was. This, this was a little more involved. I guess I got a little more, a little more details. True. Uh, For QSD.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you again for your time, Sal, and uh, enjoy yourself. Maybe I'll hear you on 630 at some point.
1: Okay, good enough.
0: What's the password for your ARRL Logbook of the World account? How about your online bank account? Well, if you can rattle off these passwords using only your memory... You either have a remarkable memory, or you're using passwords that are easy to remember, like the name of your dog or the year he was born. Well, the majority of people use the latter approach. They make up simple passwords that relate to some aspect of their lives and are easy to remember. In many instances, they use these same passwords on several different accounts, which is a major no-no. Security experts have long despised passwords. After all, they're hackable, forgettable, and sometimes even guessable. As companies like Microsoft and Google move toward embracing password-less logins, there's a company called Yubico that thinks that it has the key, pun intended, to make things much simpler. They've rolled out a new product called the YubiKey Bio, and it's the company's first hardware security key to offer fingerprint logins. These new keys are designed for use with PCs and laptops, primarily. Each key has a built-in fingerprint reader, so you can log into a site with the tap of a finger instead of having to remember your password. The key could also serve as a form of two-factor authentication if you needed it. A loop on the top of each UB Key bio makes it into a keychain, really, so you never have to leave home without it. Just attach your keys to it. Additionally, the injection-molded frame, they say, is supposed to be crush-resistant and water-resistant. These keys don't have any drivers, batteries, or other software, but you can add or delete fingerprints to the hardware via an app that Ubico has made for Windows, macOS, and Linux. Once you have a key programmed with your fingerprint, you can plug it into the computer of your choice, go to your desired web page, such as your online bank account, and then log in with just a tap of your finger. The keys work with popular operating systems, including Windows, as I said, Mac OS, Linux, and Chrome OS, and with browsers based on Chromium, and that would include Google Chrome, of course, and Microsoft Edge. I've yet to try a YubiKey BIO, but they certainly look intriguing. They are a little pricey at $85 for the USB C version and $80 for the USB-A model, but when you consider the level of security and convenience, it might be worthwhile. When I recorded this episode, the keys were only available from yubi at www.yubico.com, but I imagine they'll soon be available from other sources. And my guess is that you'll see more of these types of devices in the very near future, Microsoft, for example, wants to phase out the use of passwords. And earlier last year, Google shared its plans to eradicate passwords entirely. In fact, Google said it would make two-factor authentication mandatory on 150 million accounts. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments email eclectic at arrl.org this episode is copyright arrl and all rights are reserved i'm sabrina jackson kc1 jmw see you next time